turn with me, if you would, to the book of Job, chapter 31, and let's, uh, let's get our bearings a little bit as we look at what's taking place. Remember, the book of Job, uh, if, if you may remember, Job has undergone a time of intense suffering, and he's not sure why he is suffering, but God is, is testing Job. And as Job goes through this time of, of suffering, he has three friends who, who come, and these friends accuse him of having done something wrong to deserve his suffering. They say, okay, what, what you're undergoing right now must be God's, God's punishment of you based on, on some sin that you've done. And Job over and over again asserts his innocence. He says, no, I'm, I'm innocent of these charges. I, I haven't done these things. And here we come to chapter 31, and in chapter 31, Job gives his, his final defense. This is his, his last defense to these three friends, and he, he takes what is called in this culture an, an oath of innocence, and he says, look, if I've done this, if I've done this, or if I've done this, then may, may, may that happen to me. If I've done this, may that happen to me. So you see him doing this throughout chapter 31. This is a, a legal defense that he is giving of himself, trying to say, no, that the things that you are accusing me of doing are not true. So, so look at the text with me and, and notice just a couple of things, for example. You notice that he says, for example, he's, he's innocent of lust in verses 1 through 4. He says he's, he's innocent of dishonesty in verses 5 through 8. He says, if I've walked with falsehood, verse 5. Verse 7, if my step has turned aside from the way, um, if any spot has stuck to my hand. So if those things are true, then, verse 8, let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. He's saying, look, if these things that you're saying are true of me are true, then may I, I suffer the, this, this curse or these curses. And he's very specific. He talks about adultery in verses 9 through 12. He says, if I'm guilty of that or if I'm guilty of oppression in verses 13 through 15. And notice as, as, you, as we read here just in a moment, Notice that he's, he's not just concerned with the actions him, themselves. He's not saying, okay, I just haven't done this specific action. He's, he's even getting to the, the, the heart issue behind the action. He's, he's asserting, look, I, I, I love God. I want to worship God. And my conduct reflects the, the heart of a person who wants to worship God. And that brings us to verses 16 through 23. And in verses 16 through 23, the, the list continues, but there's a focus on the needy, upon Job asserting his right conduct, his generosity towards those who have been in need. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you're able to, as we read verses 16 through 23 together. And we're going to take a, a special note of Job's care, not just for the poor, but for the, the fatherless, the, the, the child as well. And Let's begin here in verse 16. Notice the, the ifs that he says, and then the, the then at the end, and then the, the, the motivation in verse 23. So verse 16, he, again, he's, he's asserting his innocence. If I've withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. Verse 19, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, 
If his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken for, from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. You may be seated. May God be blessed and glorified through his word. And Heavenly Father, we do recognize this morning your great love for children, your great love for those who are in need. And so, Father, we acknowledge this morning our special obligation as those who want to emulate the character of our God. We recognize our special obligation to care for needy children and their families in particular not out of a desire to justify ourselves, but out of a desire to reflect the the character of the God who has changed our hearts. We pray you would give us the ability to glorify your name and proclaim your gospel, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. When we think about generosity and whether or not we ourselves are, are generous, we can tend to think of, I'm sure, some examples of, of generosity that have taken place in our lives. Someone says, are you generous? And I'm sure most of us can think of some examples of generosity or, or think of, you know what, I, I did something that seems pretty generous to me. So, for example, I was out with my friends at, at Dairy Queen, and uh, one of them didn't have their money, and so I, I paid for their ice cream, or I was I was at a uh, a, a baseball game, and you know, we're watching the Chiefs, and someone needed uh, some some help on the on the uh, on, on the road, and I, I helped them with their car, or I bought someone a really nice Christmas present this this Christmas. All of us can think of these examples, I'm sure, of of times where we've we've done nice things for people. In fact, I was uh, reading an article this this last week, and it talked about how Americans in 2017. Americans gave 280-something billion dollars to charitable organizations in 2017. Americans are the most generous people on the planet, and we can kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we're, we're, we're generous, we give to charity more than any other nation, and yet, and, and that's good, you know, it's good to give to, to charities most of the time, I'm sure, but $280 billion is, is a lot of money, but we also spent... 280 something billion dollars on our, our cell phones in 2017. And in 2017, we spent 700 billion dollars at Christmas. You know, so, I mean, good for us, but I, I don't think that necessarily what we call generosity is, is the type of generosity that, that God has in mind as He describes generosity. Whenever Scripture talks about generosity, I think it means something deeper. Radical biblical generosity isn't just giving a, a couple bucks at the, at the fast food place when they ask you to add a little bit to your bill total so you can help out the children's hospital, although that's a good thing to do. There's something deeper in in, in, in regards to biblical generosity. Biblical generosity isn't just spending other people's money like your kids at Christmas. It's not just giving a bunch of your own money. When we're talking about biblical, radical generosity, it goes deeper to that. Biblical generosity goes to the core of who we are in Christ. As Christians, we are those who have received 
salvation from a generous God. And, and our hearts have been transformed. And now, as new creatures in Christ, we have a desire to radically meet the needs of others as well. Our radical generosity should emulate the radical generosity of our God. Think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is is talking about generosity here, and he says in verse 1 to the, the Corinthians, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And he talks about how the Macedonians gave, and I'll just read a little bit here. He says, in a severe test of affliction, Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave, the Macedonians gave, according to their means, as I can testify, and and beyond their means. They they gave more than than they had the ability to do, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So that's radical generosity. Here are some Christians who have been transformed by God's work in their hearts, and now they have this this compulsion, this godly compulsion to give as well, not just at the bare minimum, but out of a, a desire to glorify the God whom they love. And they first of all give themselves to God, and then they give themselves to others. That's that's what we're talking about when we talk about biblical generosity. Now, what happens when a church is not generous? What happens when when a church doesn't practice biblical generosity? Well, one thing that can happen is that the, the needs aren't borne by the many. Some people step up and some people meet needs and, and many people don't. And so, so the, the median of needs, that's, that's the burden that's placed on some people becomes very, very great. And our brothers and sisters in Christ who are, who are trying to meet the needs of others and when we're not, they, they can struggle. Another thing that can happen is that we fail to receive joy as a church. So here's this opportunity. The Macedonians don't look here like they're they're uh, sad about giving they're experiencing the joy of, of trusting in God and and a church that doesn't practice radical generosity doesn't get the benefit of experiencing the the joy of being obedient to God and, and seeing him work through their giving a church that isn't radically generous doesn't see the gospel proclaimed as powerfully as it could otherwise because they're not using the resources that God has given them in the way that God has said to use them for the gospel and God is not glorified as he could be when a church is not generous. Now, there's a special focus this morning that I want us to to give to children and their families in particular who are vulnerable. It's It's a focus Scripture has as well. And what we're saying this morning is that we have an obligation as a, as a church and as as individuals within the church, to generously meet their needs. In fact, here's kind of the main idea that I want us to think about as we think about who we are in Christ and Job 31 in generosity. It's, it's this. Those who truly delight in the Lord, those, those who truly love God and are in a relationship with him and desire to, to, to know him more and, and delight in his presence, those who del- truly delight in the Lord practice radical generosity to children who are in need. 
think that's inarguable from Scripture. Those who truly delight in the Lord, who, who truly delight in, in Him and His character and emulate Him and desire to worship Him rightly are going to be those who practice radical biblical generosity to children in need and their families. So here's what I want us to do as we think about this statement. I want us to first of all think about the characteristics of radical generosity. What does is, what is radical biblical generosity look like? And then I want us to talk about the motivation for this type of generosity. So, so first of all, let's talk about the characteristics of biblical generosity in verses 16 through 22. I'm using the word radical there because I don't think, um, I don't think our culture rightly understands generosity. So if we're going to practice generosity the way Scripture describes generosity, it's going to be radical. It's going to be a little, little culture-shaking. And Job, as he defends himself, gives us some of the, the characteristics that are true of a person who practices biblical generosity. So here's the first thought as we see Job defending himself. The first thing we're going to see, number one, radical generosity, biblical generosity, acknowledges the rights others have to our possessions. Radical generosity acknowledges the rights others have to our possessions. Now, notice a couple things, four things about verses 16 through 18 Four things about Job's generosity in these verses. Four things here. First of all, as we think about Job's generosity, notice that there's a graciousness to his provision for others. There's, there's graciousness. He says at the beginning of verse 16, if I have withheld anything that the poor desired, if that's true of me, he's, he's saying it's not. Now earlier in the book of Job, if you go back to Job 22, Eliaphaz had said this, in verse 7 to Job, he says, Job, uh, you've given no water to the weary to drink, and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You've sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were, were crushed by you. And Job is now saying, no, 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 that, that, that's not the case. The opposite is true. Anything that the poor desire. Now, don't take that overly literally. He's, he's not saying, hey, every Every dream that a poor person had, every desire that they had, I, I, I met. That, that's not what Job is saying. But what he's saying is, look, there was, there was no need that, that a poor person had that I was aware of that I didn't try to, 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 to meet that need. There was an abundance of Job's provision. When I was in high school, I, I discovered this amazing thing that I never heard of about. It was, it was about classes that were something called pass-fail. I'd never known that was an option. You know, a, a class you could take and just get 70%, and it was just like you had gotten a not You don't get any bonus points for getting a 90 or a, a 95 or a 100 in the class. A 70 was the same as a 100. And I thought, how can this, how can this magical thing be? And uh, so I, I, I took a couple pass-fail classes in uh, the community college and things like that. And, and I'll tell you, you know, there, was, there was a bare minimum, right? And there wasn't a, a great motivation on my part to say, you know what? I'm passing the class, but I think I could do a little bit more. You know, there, there's no motivation there. And what, what Job is saying, look, I didn't, I didn't say what's, what's the bare minimum of generosity that I can practice this to someone in need. He's saying those who were in my, my sphere of relationship, there was, there was graciousness to my provision. That they, didn't, they didn't find themselves lacking. Anything they desired, I, I, didn't, I didn't withhold. The second aspect of his generos generosity Notice another thing, there was a commitment, there was a commitment to avoid 
discouraging those who were in need. Look, look what he says next in verse 16. He says, if I cause the eyes of the widow to fail. In other words, here's a widow, she's in need. As she comes to him in need, she doesn't go away discouraged. Even if he meets that need, he doesn't do so in a way that's, that's begrudging. We've all had times where we've been in need, right? And there are some people who, whenever you're in need and you, you, you know you need to ask someone for something, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a report you need to ask someone, a coworker at work, or maybe it's a, a child that you need to ask to do something. You know, there's, there's some people you're going to ask, and it's just going to be a little difficult, right? They're, they're going to do it, but, it, but it's not going to be very, they're not going to be very happy about it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a restaurant in town that's a great restaurant. But um, they're, they're really uh, tight on their napkins, you know. So you get your food, and you get one, like literally one napkin. And uh, I said, well, you know, um, can, can I have a, a second napkin? And I always, I always feel like I've, I've asked for a very great thing, you know. So there's kind of a ceremony of getting the, the next napkin, you know. And it's, it's this very, I feel like I'm really imposing upon the person who is giving me the snap. That's, it's not a very pleasant feeling, right? And we've all been in that situation where you've had to ask someone for something and they give it to you, but you just, it just does, you feel like you've imposed on them. It doesn't feel like a very good thing. And then we've also had the opposite experience, right? There are some people in our lives who you ask them for a favor, you ask them for something that you, that you need, and they are so excited that you've asked them for that that, that you, you feel like you're doing them a favor, it's like uh, going home to mom, you know, and, and, and fine, mom, okay, you can make me one more dessert if that's really going to make you happy. Oh, thank you, son. And there's just this, this joy that, that, that some people have from meeting needs. Now, what type of person do you want to be? A person who's radically generous says, I, I'm excited about meeting needs. And when people come to me or whenever, whenever I'm in relationship with a person, there's, there's such a, a generosity on my part that people who receive things from me don't even feel like they're, they're imposing on me in any way whatsoever. It's not, it's not discouraging. Another thing that we see about Job's generosity, there's a recognition on his part, this is very important, there's a recognition on his part that he cannot live in isolation and fulfill his covenantal responsibility to God's people. Does that make sense? Job recognizes, I cannot live in isolation. If I live in isolation, I'm not fulfilling the, the, the covenantal obligations, the obligations I have to live in a community with other people, particularly God's people. Look at what verse 17 says. He says, if I've eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. In other words, if I, if I have this, this food, if I have this stuff and I'm enjoying it by myself, when others are lacking, I've failed to live as God would have me live. This is such a crucial concept for those of us who live in North America, in our houses and in our individual gated areas. This is such a crucial concept for us to grasp. It is very, very, very easy to live in isolation. For me to have my stuff behind my door, to have my fence up, to have my, my things that I enjoy in the privacy of my own home, it's very easy for us to become very selfish very quickly. 
And what Job rightly understands is that God has placed him in the context of a community. And for him to eat in isolation while others are in need is a violation of the covenantal obligations he has to others. The last thing to notice about his generosity, there's a concreteness to his help. There's, there's specificity. He gives a specific example. He doesn't just step back and say, you know what? Helping people is great. Helping people is awesome. I love to help people. Job has the ability to point to specific things that God has done through him. He says in verse 18, as he talks about how he has not lived in isolation, he gives a specific example. He says, for from my youth, and some of the pronouns in the original language can be a little confusing here, but here's how the ESV translates it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Now, what is he saying there? Essentially what he's saying is my entire life, those who are in need have been able to look to me for relationship. I've, I've cared for the fatherless like a father would care for a child. I've, I've cared for the widow the way that God would have me care for them. Throughout my life, my conduct has been marked by caring for those who are in need. And Job can point to specific relationships that bear that out. He's not like just some, some person who vaguely says, I think that charity is great. He has something concrete to point to. Job's defense, I've not been stingy. I've practiced generosity. And the first way we, we know that we're practicing radical generosity is when, like Job, we recognize that others have rights to my possessions. They say, hold on, what, what do you mean by the word rights? That's a very loaded word in our culture, right? I think it's a hard concept for us as Americans. But what I'm saying here is that others don't just deserve access to my stuff. They have a, a right to my things. I've, I've told this, again, it's a hard thing culturally for us to think about. I've told this story before about how my oldest son, one time we were in this, this class, and I was, I was teaching a, a kind of an economic class for, for these young kids, and we had some Skittles packets of Skittles, and we talked about different ways that we could distribute these Skittles. And uh, one person said, well, maybe we could vote on who gets what Skittles. Maybe we could, another person said, well, maybe we could do a contest. And the person who wins a contest could get the most, and second place get a little more. And then this, this really sweet, sweet, sweet girl in the group raised her hand, and she said, well, I think we should divide up the, the Skittles equally. And my son looked at her, and he yelled, that's communism! Uh, so, you know, I'm not advocating communism this morning, right? I'm not advocating communism. I'm not saying people should come in and demand my stuff. It's, it's not a right in that sense. It's not a right that other people can, that if, I, if I'm lacking something, I don't go to someone who has a lot of stuff and say, hey, that's my stuff. It's, it's not a right like that. I'm talking about something deeper. It's a right in this sense. It's a right in that the owner of what I have has designated how I use it in a certain way. It's like when you're the executor of my will, and I've said, okay, here's, here's, my, here's my stuff, and now here are the people that I, I want you to give it to, all right? 
my, my children have a, a right to my stuff, and if you're the, the person who's, who's retaining ownership of my stuff so you can d- distribute it, I, I've told you very specifically, look, here's how my stuff is to be distributed. Right now, the things that you and I have aren't ours. The things that you have belong to someone else. They belong to God. And he's the one who has the right to determine how those things are used. Here's a couple points of application for us to think through. Number one, I'm I'm a steward, not an owner. This is a crucial principle for us to grasp. I don't own the things that are in my possession. And those of us who are wealthy, and most of the people in this room who are North Americans are wealthy, we have a hard time grasping this reality. The more we have, the more we have a sense that we earned it, and it's harder for us to be generous. The less we have, the more generous we are very often. During the the Great Recession, those of us who are wealthy uh, reduced our giving much more than those who were in lower income brackets. So God, the first thing as we think about application here, we're, we're stewards, not owners. Secondly, we see that God cares for those who are in need. God is glorified in a unique way when the physical and the spiritual needs of the of the disenfranchised, the poor, the children are met. The psalmist says, the needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Psalm 10, verse 17, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. Hosea 14, 3, in you, God, the orphan finds mercy. So we're stewards, not owners. God cares for those children who are in need. And then another point of application for us to think through is that God calls on his people to emulate him in their care for the poor. Listen to what scripture says to us. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. God loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So if God, God loves a sojourner, If God gives a sojourner food and clothing, how does God do that? He does it through his people. He's given them his stuff for them to use in accordance with how he would use it. He provides for the sojourner. How is he doing that? He's doing that through us. Proverbs 23 Don't move an ancient landmark. Don't enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Malachi 3, verse 5, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. Those all sound like really bad people, right? I'll be a witness against against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God desires his possessions to be used in caring for the fatherless, and he wants you and I to do what he would do with his stuff for his glory and for the fullness of our joy. This is the sense in which I'm using the word right. Now, say that I'm talking to my, my son, and he's going to take his, his younger brother out for uh, a movie or something. And I say, hey, you know what? Uh, I'd love to cover this for you guys. So here's, here's, uh, here's $20, and uh, this is for, for you guys to, to go 
I watch a movie together. And so he says, oh, thanks, Dad. And he comes back home, and I say, how was the movie? And he says, it was good. I say, where's, you know, what did you do with the money? He said, oh, yeah. So I just decided that I would, I would spend it on uh, lots of candy for myself. You know? Well, that's not what I told you to do with my money. Yeah, I know. That's good. Just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give my brother a little something. That, that's not how God has called us to use our possessions. What do we, why do we do this? Well, first of all, we look at our home. What, what are the needs of the, the, the people who are in our home? And then we look out to the church. We say, okay, there, there are people in, in, this, in this church who have significant needs. And if you're in relationship with people, you can't help but find out that the needs of the people who are part of your church. You get involved in ministry. You put yourself in places where relationships are likely to be formed and you find out need. Acts chapter 2 says that the, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now that is radical generosity, right? Recognizing that your needs are, are enough of a familial obligation for me that if, if I need to sell some of my things to help meet your basic needs, I, I'm willing to do so. Because you have a right to my things, not because they're yours, but because they're God's. Day by day, the result was, day by day, this, partly because of this radical generosity, they were attending the temple, they were breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So we look to our homes, we look to our family in the church, we, we look to children in need and others in our community. Our, in, our, in our area, 111 children, just for one example, were hosted uh, through safe families in uh, our church and others uh, in this area that, in 2019 that, that, that must continue. Now, one, one quick caveat. Um, and we have to be careful with this, but, but some of you are not in a position to give. Pro- probably very few, but, but some of us are not in a position to give. Some of us are in a position to receive. And if you find yourself in a position where for a period of time God is calling you to receive, you need to let the church give, right? Because we're part of a family. And so uh, allow, please let us know of your needs. Please let other, other people who are part of your life know of those needs so that those needs can be met. If you're a, a, a young mother in some tough financial situations, if you are a, a young family in a tough situation, a young single person, you're a, a widow, you're a widower, let us know of those needs so that we can fulfill our God-given obligation to do what God wants us to do with his stuff, right? Secondly, second thing about radical generosity, radical generosity meets people's basic needs. Radical generosity has, has a, a passion to meet people's basic needs. Look at what Job says next. Job says, uh, if anyone, if I've seen anyone, perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me and if he was not warmed with the fleece of, of my sheep. Now, so what is he talking about here? There's, again, kind of four things to notice about Job's 
care for others. First of all, notice that he has awareness. He's aware of needs. He says, if I've, I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing. So this is the exact opposite of what James describes, of a person who has youth, useless religions, a person who sees a person in need and says, hey, be warmed and filled. Like, hey, I hope, I hope good things happen to you without meeting those needs. Job here understands, look, I, I, I need to be aware of need. So there's an awareness. Now, do you know that there's, I believe there's something like, uh, I think it's around, Around 20% of, of people in, in Peoria live below the poverty line. I think it's 8% in Tazewell County, maybe, maybe somewhere around 8%. You know what the, the largest group that, that lives below the poverty line is? Th- those who are most vul- vulnerable in Tazewell County? It's, it's single women ages 18 through 24. You know, second, the second most vulnerable group women ages 25 to 34. And then in the third most vulnerable group is women, I think, 45 and uh, 45 to 55. We need to be aware of that. If there are women in our community who are in need and we're not aware of that, and, thou- and there's, there's hundreds of them, shame on us, right? That's why... Uh, ministries like uh, My Sister's House and, and Heartline and, and Heart House are, are so crucial for us as we fulfill uh, our need to care for the families and children in need. If we are don't know of needs, if we're isolated, that is a spiritual problem. Job is also proactive. So he's, he's aware, he's proactive in be- meeting people's basic needs. Something happens before, between verses uh, 19 and 20. He, he, he does something because in verse 20 the person is thanking him. So there, there's an awareness. And then thirdly, uh, uh, Job is also relationally involved. So he's aware, he's proactive as he meets people's basic needs, and then he's relationally involved. Ver- verse 20 says that, He says, if his body has not blessed me. In other words, this person knows Job, and he's in relationship with him, and and, and Job is is aware of his needs and continues to meet them. There's this this relational connection, which must be true for us as well as we get involved in people's lives. (laughs) There's this this character in a Charles Dickens novel. The, The novel is called Bleak House. And uh, this, this, this character, Mrs. Jellybee, uh, she has, <laughs> Dickens calls her a, a telescopic philanthropist. A telescopic philanthropist. In other words, she can see needs a long, long, long way off and get really excited about them, but has almost no awareness of the needs of the people of her own home. Dickens writes that she had a curious habit of seeming, she had eyes that were handsome but had a curious habit of seeming to look a long way off as if they could see nothing nearer than Africa. Our obligation, our joyful obligation as those who are going to meet people's needs, meet people's basic needs, is we need to be aware, we need to be proactive, and we need to be relationally involved. A person who's going to practice radical generosity isn't a person who just kind of writes some checks and says, hey, hope this helps. A person who is going to practice the type of generosity that God calls us to in the lives of families and children in need is going to be a person who gets personally involved as God enables them to and as God calls them to. 
And another characteristic here of meeting these basic needs is there's personal sacrifice. Job says, they were warmed with the fleece of my sheep. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Job didn't just go to the other guys and say, hey guys, uh, why don't you guys all don't? Job personally gets involved in these people's lives who are in need, and he provides them with his own fleece. Here's a crucial question. As we think about the application for children need, here's here's a crucial question I want you to, to ask yourself. Am I willing to allow a child in need to stay in need? I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. Am I willing to allow a child who is in need to stay in need? The way that you answer yes to that question is you refuse to be aware of the needs that exist in in the lives of children in our community. The way you answer yes to that is when you are aware of those needs to say, well, I hope someone else does something about that. The way you answer yes to that question, yeah, I'm fine with allowing children to stay in need, is to close your heart to personally providing and getting involved in the lives of children and their family who need you. Radical generosity says, I I know that I have an obligation to to meet the basic needs of others, and I'm going to do so. And that brings us to this last point. Radical generosity protects the rights of the weak despite the personal cost. Job says, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. He's describing here fraudulent business dealing, abuse by the powerful against the weak. The the gate is where business would be conducted, and there's a power disparity between Job and the poor. Job has lots of friends in these positions of power at the gate where they're making these decisions. The poor, the fatherless do not. And Job says, I've never used my power to press my advantage and crush the rights of the weak. And brothers and sisters, we know in our culture that the powerful still have voices that the weak do not. It's a hard one to think through. It's wrong to use levers of power to crush the weak. Pro-abortion laws allow the powerful with a voice to harm those without a voice. A separation of, of children from their parents at the border, I think, is an example. It's a practice to receive condemnation from all, the, all different political stripes, including the president. But th- there was a time where we, we didn't recognize that, look, this is an example of, of, in, of in, whatever you want to say about how immigration laws, sh- what they should be. I think we would all say the way that they're enforced shouldn't be in such a way that harms children who are caught in the crosshairs. That's a perversion of justice. In other words, I cannot be willing to use the mechanisms of power to harm children to protect me financially. Here's the last thing I want us to think about real quickly, the motivation for radical generosity. The motivation for radical generosity. Job writes, for I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. Job understands that his actions are not driven just by a desire to justify himself, but his, his, actions, his actions are aligned 
with what he knows about the character of God. He's motivated because he says, I know that God defends the fatherless. I know that he defends the the children, that he defends those who are in need. And I'm, I'm in terror of being at odds with God himself. And what's more, I could not have faced his majesty. I desire to behold God's majesty with joy instead of dread. In other words, those who are going to practice radical generosity are going to be those who are in true relationship with God. Those believers who practice radical generosity reveal they rightly understand and delight in his character. Those who do not practice radical generosity reveal that they are not in true relationship with God. They reveal they don't care about his character They're not worried about facing his majesty. We need God to transform our hearts, and it's a provision that is only found in Jesus Christ. Here's here's an interesting thing about Job. Job's life demonstrated these characteristics that he defends himself on generally. But we know that Job, as we go through the book of Job, wasn't perfect Job himself says, look, ultimately, my hope is in what? My hope is in a redeemer, Job says in Job 19. He says, I know that my redeemer lives, the one who will restore life to me. Job hopes in the work of Jesus Christ, as do we. Those who truly delight in the Lord practice radical generosity to children in need and were motivated by our great love for God, who also loves children We're those who open our homes. We're those who care for the the broader family of a child in need to help reunite families who are in momentary need. We pray. We give financially. We give financially to the, the ministries of this church. This church has line items in the budget that are for helping children who are in need. We also give generously and financially to families and to the orphan ministry, those who are adopting, those who are fostering, those who are involved in safe families. We give of our time to help provide homes for children. We give of our time to help those who are in that ministry so they can continue to do it by God's grace. Those who truly delight in the Lord practice radical generosity to those who are in need. We've done this well, church, and let's, by God's grace, continue to grow in our ability to delight in the Lord in this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you by your grace that you've given us your son. We thank you that you are the generous God, that all good things come from you. And now we trust ourselves to your care. Through the work of your son, Jesus, we trust ourselves, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the basis of his righteousness to you. And we ask that you would continue to keep us and hold us and allow us to live in such a way that we reflect your generosity in how we meet the needs of others. We pray this. You would would, uh, make us aware of need and and help us know how we fit in to the the great needs that exist in our our church, in our community. You give us the ability to to see those things and enable us to do that, that part that you've called us to, that we would share this burden well for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.